You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. I'd also like to welcome our newest Commodore, Drunken Dak, and compliment you on a spectacular name, and of course, our Quartermaster, Heather. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we talked about... Well, we talked about the history of the 16th century. It was obviously extremely truncated, but it was sort of a medley of history pertinent to pirates and piracy from about 1453 to 1573. And we touched on all the hits. We talked about Christopher Columbus and the Spanish Empire. We talked about the Treaty of Tordesillas and the Anglo-Spanish War. And we talked about Sir Francis Drake. Very briefly, we talked about the dawn of the Protestant Reformation. And that's a theme that we'll be talking about more today. I had a conversation with someone once who didn't agree with the idea that there was a connection or a correlation between the Golden Age pirates and revolutionary America, or even revolutionary France. They, well, their attitude could be summed up, sort of, you know, blah, 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 same century, yeah, yeah, but what do a bunch of drunken anarchist sailors busy stealing things have to do with the genteel landowners or the French peasants that actually enacted revolution? And I definitely see their point, but today I'm going to try to answer that question, to see what those drunken anarchist sailors have to do with those landowners and those peasants, what they have in common. And to that end, we're going to continue our look at the story so far. We're going to focus on four countries today, countries that will be the major players in our story to come, But we need to realize that they aren't really countries, not in the sense that we think of nations today. At the turn of the 17th century, the very idea of nationhood was still deeply intertwined with the institution of monarchy. A kingdom was a very different idea than what we know as a nation today. When we think of a nation, we might think of a citizenry, with a bureaucracy and a government that oversees everything. But instead a kingdom was a king at the very top, and under him the nobility, and under them the subjects. And I know, that seems obvious, that's just what a kingdom is, right? But what I'm getting at here is that a monarchy was a top-down approach to nationhood. The monarch in any kingdom was the unifying force of that nation. The presence of the monarch was what made that nation exist. To France and England and Spain, the very existence of all of those nations, well, they were all inextricably linked to their heads of state. Well, you know, you really couldn't say they were inextricably linked because today we're going to talk about the event that will extract the king from the existential role they played in the nation-state. But that's not going to be an easy process. That's going to be terrible. That event, though, it did something to the people. It taught them a lot about the monarchy and its role in their lives and its role in their nations, and it taught them about the religious and societal institutions that really ruled their lives. And today we're going to see a large number of people decide that they don't want anything to do with any of that. They don't want a king, they don't want a queen, or a lord, or a lady overseeing their lives. They don't want priests to tell them what they can and can't do, on pain of hell. And many of them choose that they don't even want laws, except for laws that they already personally agreed to. And as an American, that speaks to the ideal of my nation's founding, as well as really the entire idea of Western democracy. 
you know, I think that would speak to the French as well, or anybody who lives in a nation who has a creation myth based in revolution. Somebody once asked me who I thought should sit on the Iron Throne of Westeros in Game of Thrones. I thought about it for a bit before I came up with nobody because monarchy is a bad idea. So today, we're going to look at four nations. We're going to look at four noble houses that were in control of those nations. We're going to talk about their religious and political climate, and then we're going to talk about the event that changed everything. We're going to see how those nations were changed after that, and then we'll get to the men and women that tossed all of that aside to create something of their own. This is episode 101, The Story So Far, Part 2. To understand who those men and women were that tossed all of that aside, we need to understand where it is they came from. So I'd like to look at the state of things in Europe in about 1610. And if you've been listening to the show throughout our story of the Barbary Pirates, this is a good place. It picks up where that story left off. We should start off with the biggest players in that European game, the House of Habsburg. The Habsburgs were the major players in European politics, and honestly, they had been for some time. For many years, Holy Roman Emperors had come almost exclusively from the House of Habsburg. The Spanish royal family was the closest ally of those Holy Roman Emperors, since their king, Philip III, was also of that Habsburg line. The Habsburgs also claimed a large number of dukedoms and the like, and... There were Habsburg daughters married to nobles of every rank all around Europe, and most of those daughters had much more loyalty to their family than their husband. Whoever the Pope happened to be at the time was generally on the side of the Habsburgs, as that royal family was really the most staunchly Catholic institution in Europe after the Church itself. In many ways, the Habsburgs were the political and military legs of a tripod which was completed by the church, and that tripod had held Europe up for centuries. By 1610, the Habsburgs were, at least, adversarial with almost everybody else in Europe, and with many of them, they were outright enemies. But the Habsburgs were powerful and numerous enough to survive that situation and even to thrive in it. In our story of four houses and four nations, three of them were opposed to the Habsburgs at every turn. And they had to be, to be even close to matching the strength and influence that the House of Habsburg had. The first of these that we're going to talk about was the newly formed Dutch Republic, the Netherlands had formerly been the Spanish Netherlands, and a mere colony of Habsburg rule. In the 1580s, though, the Netherlands rebelled in what was called the Dutch Revolt. This revolt gave birth to the Zee Rovers, a group of Dutch privateers which would eventually lead to the many Dutch buccaneers who will hold center stage later on in our story. The Dutch Revolt had help from two major powers, France and England, and those are the other two nations we'll be focusing on today. The revolt was led by a man named William the Silent, or William of Orange. He was the founder of one of the houses central to our story moving forward, the House of Orange Nassau. But by 1610, William the Silent was dead, and his son Maurice had taken his place. Now, Maurice of Orange wasn't a king. The Dutch Republic didn't have kings, but he was stadtholder of nearly every province in the Netherlands. But the stadtholder is only a steward. Now, Maurice served as sort of a de facto head of state and a de facto commander-in-chief, but he didn't have the whole divine right part of kingship, which is key to understanding the Netherlands. See, they didn't believe in the divine right of kings, and they were no longer Catholic. The Protestant Reformation was well underway, almost a century old by 1610, and it had taken root in the Netherlands. Over in Germany, where Martin Luther lit the fire of Reformation, well, first of all, they were still sort of officially Catholic in Germany, 
But many of the lords and princes and dukes that actually ruled Germany were openly Lutheran, and legally Lutheran. More on that in a bit. But the Dutch were not Lutherans. They were Calvinist Protestants. Calvinism is a sect based on the teachings of, well, a host of theologians, really, but it's named after a man named Jean Calvin, or John Calvin, who was a French theologian. The beliefs of the Calvinist faiths, and there are a number of different Calvinist faiths, they're really not that important to our discussion, and it would be easy to get bogged down in discussions of transubstantiation or, you know, the real presence of the Christ. But Calvinism is the basis for quite a few modern-day denominations in the Christian faith. The other strongholds of Calvinist thought in Europe, though, were Scotland, as well as Switzerland, which is where John Calvin did most of his work, and parts of France. Which really brings us to France. France was its own complicated nightmare of religious ideologies and shifting allegiances. It's almost impossible to follow the political and military moves that had taken place in France over the past century. I doubt I would be able to give a concise, comprehensive breakdown of what was happening there. And if I tried, I doubt I could do it correctly. So I'll give just a very basic outline. After decades of war between the Catholics and the Protestant population in France, France was once again officially Catholic. But due to something called the Edict of Nantes, the Protestant population in France, called the Huguenots, who were Calvinists, well, they were given a fair amount of autonomy and religious freedom. Now, that wouldn't last, but more on that later. The king of France in 1610 was a Bourbon monarch, Louis XIII. And Louis XIII was, well, you know, he was fine as a king. Much like Philip III of Spain, Louis XIII did an okay job. You know, not a great job, considering Europe was about to devolve into the most destructive period that they had ever seen, but I guess they did okay. And actually, that sounds a lot like the King of England in 1610 as well, a man named James Stuart. Now, James was a Protestant king, and England was a Protestant nation. England had gone through a large number of religious reversals and purges from both sides, but Queen Elizabeth had been on the throne for many years, and she had ensconced the English church in the English society. There were of course, competitors to the English church. There were the Puritans, for example. They were, at that point, a relatively small sect of austere, fundamentalist zealots that hated fun and books and alcohol and sex and Christmas. And then, in addition to the Puritans, there were the Scots as well. The Scots, when Elizabeth had been on the throne, were led by Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, Mary was Scottish by birth, but had lived almost her entire life in France, and she was Catholic. She believed that her claim to the throne of England, being not a Protestant heretic, was stronger than that of Elizabeth. She could trace her lineage back to the king before Henry VIII, who had broken from the Catholic faith. Now, Mary tried to claim the throne, but she never succeeded. However, her son James VI of Scotland became James I of England once Elizabeth died, and he became the founder of the Stuart dynasty on the English throne. Now, James wasn't Catholic, like his mother had been, but he was a Scottish Protestant. The Scots weren't Anglican, however, remember, they were Calvinists. So, the new King of England and the head of the Anglican Church, the King, was the son of a Catholic rebel and himself not Anglican. You might imagine he was not wildly popular there in England. He was perhaps the least popular among English privateers. See, there were a lot of privateers in England, operating out of England at least, that had been given their licenses under Queen Elizabeth for the Anglo-Spanish War. Men like Francis Drake and Peter Easton and John Ward... But when James I took the English throne, he ended the war with Spain, and he recalled all of the privateering licenses that Elizabeth had handed out. 
All of a sudden, there were thousands of sailors without work. Now, James did have a plan here. He intended to fold all of those former privateers into his own personal navy. His intent was to build an English royal navy. There were a couple of hiccups to that plan, though. Probably most importantly was the fact that the navy was awful, especially when it was compared to the relative freedoms of a privateer's life. Life at sea was always dangerous. It was always spare and uncomfortable. But that was bearable when you received a share of whatever your ship took, and you felt you had a voice in what your ship did, and when you received as much booze as you wanted. But when, instead, you received a meager wage instead of a share, and instead of booze you received stale water, and instead of a say in what your ship did, you were met with a whip at the mainmast until you were bloody, life seemed a lot less pleasant. As you might imagine, the former privateers didn't really take to this new naval lifestyle. Many of the ship owners that had been privateers turned to trade, but many of the regular sailors who had been crew on board the many privateering vessels now in navy ships well, instead, they decided to kill their superiors and take the ship to, mostly to Barbary or America, where they could continue to prey on Spanish shipping. They still considered themselves privateers, but they weren't. These were pirates, plain and simple. The navy of King James, what he intended to be the Royal Navy, found itself short on men and facing a problem of pirates from English lands. James's solution, really the solution of the Lord High Admiral, was to press-gang the poorest and most vulnerable men from ports all around England into the Navy. That is, agents working for the Admiralty either got a group of men stinking drunk or literally just clubbed wayfarers over the head and packed them aboard the ship. When the men finally awoke, they found themselves far out at sea with two options— they could either sign up for a term of service on board that ship, or, well, there's always the open ocean. So as you might imagine, whenever enough of these press-ganged sailors were aboard and abroad in maybe the Mediterranean, or maybe off the coast of Brazil or the West Indies, or even if they were on the Atlantic coast of the newly founded American colonies, they might just take that opportunity to look around and say, you know, the weather's pretty nice here. The food isn't bad, and the women are all attractive. Maybe we should just kill all of the officers and take the ship. But then, once you had the ship and no officers to tell you what to do, you realized that if you were going to buy the food and trinkets for those attractive women, you had to have some money. And they were able to get that money, usually by you guessed it, stealing it from the Spanish. And thus a generation of the first English pirates was born. But back to England and James I. He wasn't popular, but he wasn't extremely divisive. He wasn't extremely unpopular. Very similar to Philip III and Louis XIII, James I was okay. He did a lot of work involving the arts and literacy and literature, so he's a man after mine own heart in that respect. He compiled an English-language Bible, the King James Bible, and the people mostly liked it. He was a patron to artists and playwrights like Shakespeare, and he oversaw a time of general prosperity. Now, England was part of a sort of an international alliance. England was Anglican, but the other members of that alliance were, well, the Netherlands was Calvinist, and the Ottoman Empire was Muslim. Obviously, they had a lot of differences, but they all could agree on one central tenet, that Catholics were just the worst. England often fought in the Netherlands to help fight off Spanish Catholics. The Netherlands often fought in the English Channel and the Mediterranean to help fight off Spanish Catholics. And the Ottoman Empire, 
Mostly they just fought in the Mediterranean to help fight off Catholics, but they kept them busy while England and the Netherlands were busy doing their thing. But it really wasn't Catholicism that was the issue here. There was another member to that international alliance, the Catholic King of France. There was an alliance in place, the Franco-Ottoman alliance, that had been brokered in part by the Ottoman pirate Barbarossa, and it was still in effect. In fact, that Franco-Ottoman alliance was kind of the backbone of this whole international agreement. England and the Netherlands had both brokered treaties with France, and then they had moved on to broker treaties with the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. They were all fighting separate wars, sometimes at the same time and sometimes at different times, but they would usually check with the other members of the alliance to ensure that nothing they did would ruin the other's plans and perhaps they could consolidate their efforts and work together. And all of those wars, even though they were different, were all against the same enemy, the House of Habsburg. See, None of these rulers really cared about religion. That's not to say none of them were faithful in their religion, but... Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that when King James was offered the crown of England, he spent a lot of time worrying about the discrepancies between his faith and the English faith? Did he spend his nights worrying about transubstantiation? Was he worried about whether or not his communion wafer was literally the body of Christ? Or was he busy thinking about what he could do once he was the king of Scotland and England? Now somebody might come along and correct me here. There might be journal entries where he does spend a significant amount of time worrying about that. But in the end, he did decide to switch faiths because it gave him more power. And that's really what mattered here. Power, and money, and the power to get more money. For most rulers in this era, and frankly for rulers for some time to come, religion was a tool. It was a lot easier to convince your subjects to kill their neighbors if they believed that their neighbors were heretical monsters, monsters that were bent on spreading their sinful beliefs to you. These leaders could use legitimate faith, and oftentimes a faith that they legitimately believed, but they could use it to further goals that had nothing to do with the religion. If religion was the real problem here, then why would the Protestant leaders of the Netherlands and England have allied with Catholic France? Why would any of them, all of them Christian, have allied with the Ottoman Empire? It wasn't about faith, it was about power and politics. That alliance, that international agreement, was not built to spread the good word, but to limit, restrict, and constrict the ever-growing influence of the House of Habsburg. So you have the Habsburgs, the House of Orange-Nassau, the Bourbon dynasty, and the Stuarts. There were four great houses maneuvering and infighting and assassinating and marrying. Occasionally, they even went to war. All of that is very Game of Thrones, but then... In 1615, well, let's look at Germany for a minute. There was a treaty in place in Germany called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. The Peace of Augsburg, or the Treaty of Augsburg, stated that every ruler in each of the 224 German states had the right to choose either Catholicism or Lutheranism as the state's official religion. Now, this was a big win for Protestantism in 1555, but it was, more than anything, a win for the Lutherans. In the intervening 60 or so years, two big things had happened. First of all, Calvinism spread, and Calvinism wasn't accounted for in the original treaty, and that treaty was very specific in its language, specific in allowing for either Catholicism or Lutheranism. This was intended to remove the Anabaptists from power, who were a radical group, but it also kept the Calvinists, mostly Swiss and Bohemian Calvinists, out of the treaty. And in many ways, because of this, they were persecuted for their beliefs. And then second, well, following the wars that Spain fought against England and the Netherlands, they found themselves weak. 
But by 1615, a new generation of young men had been born, and the House of Habsburg in Spain had had time to rebuild their strength. And due to these two factors, and then there were also things like a number of socioeconomic problems and a growing middle class that wanted economic freedom, though the rulers of Europe were still stuck in the old feudal system, so due to a large number of factors, but pertinent to our story, I'm sticking to those two major factors, due to that, in 1615, Germany broke out into war. And from that, Europe spiraled into a general European war. The Thirty Years' War, as it would be called some years later, was, well, it's been called since then, the real World War I. See, every nation in Europe was dragged into this conflict on some level, but Europe had seen general wars before. What made this different, what made it called by some the first real World War I, was the addition of colonies. In this case, colonies were used mostly to produce food to feed the armies there in Europe. But most of the local farmers in Europe, instead of producing barley or some such crop, were busy being swept up into armies. They could do so because those colonies were producing food, and that meant that in Europe there were bigger armies than anyone had ever really fielded before. That means that battles could last longer than they ever had, and in a lot of ways they started to look not terribly dissimilar from battles in the Napoleonic Wars, or even in the American Civil War. There were a number of distinct differences, obviously, but they probably looked more like Napoleonic battlefields than Hastings or Tours, and the soldiers on those battlefields, well, they had swords and they had pikes, and actually the pike would be a major factor in the fighting, and they wore breastplates, but they weren't fighting traditional medieval warfare. The pikes were used as a complement to the most powerful force on the battlefield, the musket. The battles that were fought during the Thirty Years' War, and over in England, the English Civil War, really the Thirty Years' War was a number of different conflicts fought between different nations that have been kind of gathered together into one single war. But the battles usually looked something like this. The sons of noble houses and their well-dressed retainers rode around on their very fine horses looking very gallant. They scouted the battlefield, but occasionally they would skirmish with other nobles and their retainers from other countries. This was a tit-for-tat kind of maneuver, attempting to counter the moves of the other side. This was a big fancy game of risk in which young noblemen were pitted against one another, matching wit for wit. Occasionally they would match sword for sword. Heroic deeds were done and honorable wounds were suffered to prove that these rich noble sons were no sissies. Meanwhile, the actual soldiers were doing the actual fighting. They would form usually hedgehog units of pikes to guard the musketeers in the center of the unit. Those units would engage one another in what they called push pikes. That's an ancient style of war. Two pike lines carrying large spears and sometimes shields would try to break through one another's lines. But here there was that one major difference that makes these battlefields look more like Napoleon's, and that's guns. You know, on a Roman battlefield they might push the spears, but here, every so often, the musketeers would be able to get a volley off, and the line of defenders opposite the volley, they'd fall. Another line would come up to replace them, and the fight would continue, but this time the fight continued on the backs of dead and dying men, bleeding there on that battlefield. And due to the enlarged size of the armies, because of all that colonial food, and the advancements in gunpowder, these battles, when they really got bad, could get really bad. I mean, you know, no one wanted to lose their leg in a trench in World War I, but at least, hopefully, they had some opium. No one wanted to have their arm chopped off in a tent in the American Civil War, but at least they had whiskey. But in this conflict, a musket ball would mean a slow, painful, agonizing death in the bloody mud of a German battlefield, and they didn't even have the most basic medical science to help. 
And then, since those colonies were producing all of the food to make these battles possible, and these men got tired of dying in the bloody mud of German fields, the generals decided that it was time to turn to one of the oldest tricks in the military book. When the battles became difficult, it was clear that they had to cut off the supply. So there were navies sent to Africa and Asia and the West Indies, and their marine troops fought there, and the only troops there to defend those places were the native locals. Everyone else was busy fighting in Europe. There might be a few men-at-arms, but no armies to speak of. And this was... Yeah, it was about cutting off the supply of food, but more than that, really, it was about stealing the colonies from your enemy. And then you could cut off their supplies and divert them to your side. As usually happened here, the local population suffered terribly. And this was just a new group of armed and armored conquerors that sailed in to kill the old group of conquerors and, in the interim, commit whatever atrocity they pleased. It was terrible. It was always terrible when this sort of thing happened. And then, when the foreign farmers were busy being raped and murdered in record numbers, another army of marines from another force would come in to try and counter the move of the first force that had sailed in, and due to all of the fighting that started going on all around the world, the supply of food for the European troops began to dry up. All of a sudden, these massive armies that hadn't planted any barley because they were relying on the food from around the world, well, they didn't have any food coming in. So they began treating the homes of innocent European women and children much as their comrades had treated those faraway homes in their colonial holdings. What do you imagine happens when a village of women and children, when all of their menfolk have been swept up into some lord's army, what happens when another army comes along? In the normal run of things, you know, that was never a pleasant experience, but it wasn't usually apocalyptic. These soldiers, even the enemy soldiers, marching in, well, they had families of their own. They wouldn't want to give the enemy any excuse to commit atrocities against their families, so they wouldn't do it themselves. You know, there would be some light pillaging, but kind of a small, professional army level of pillage. But then, imagine that small professional army turned into a huge number of starving, undertrained, undisciplined conscripts, and that situation got a lot worse. I really don't want to talk about all of the things that happened in that war. Every time I read about them, I realize that this happened to real people. These aren't figures in a storybook. This is real life. There was, as is usually expected, sexual violence. Lots of it. There were mass executions that remind one of Germany during World War II. And then there were things like cannibalism. And yeah... The perpetrators of all of that were acting monstrously. But were they monsters? Think about what those people endured. Literally starving to death, watching their friends starve to death. Going into battle, weak with hunger, and ordered to stand there and soak up musket balls. Suffering from dysentery and typhus, from outbreaks of bubonic plague. It drove people... The soldiers who did these things, it drove them mad. Then those diseases they suffered, the hunger they suffered, the suffering in general, it spread to the populace. And when it did, they all turned on each other. Mass mobs of people would burn thousands of women in Germany for witchcraft. They purged their lands of what they considered to be Jewish heretics, they salted or burned fields to deny their next-door neighbors food. The Thirty Years' War, as it dragged on and the pain became more and more evident, well, it brought life in Europe to a halt. It gave us glimmers of what warfare would be like for Napoleon or the great powers of World War I, but they didn't have the medical science that Napoleon would have. They didn't have the industrialization or the trains that the powers in World War I would have. But what made it worse than the Napoleonic Wars, and arguably made it worse than even World War I, 
was the length. People suffered terribly during World War I. No one could deny that. But World War I lasted for four years. That's 26 years less than the Thirty Years' War. Of course, the artillery available during the Thirty Years' War could not nearly do the damage that it could during World War I, but that doesn't mean that... Well, there were towns that existed before the Thirty Years' War that weren't there afterwards. There weren't enough people left in those locales after the war to keep that town around. Most of the men, if not all of them, had been carried off to fight, and the women and children had mostly died of disease or starvation or massacre. Anyone who was left, well, they weren't enough to make a township. They weren't enough to support one another, so they had to go elsewhere. They became refugees in their own homeland. Now, from the top down, from the point of view of the crowned heads and noble houses who owned large amounts of Europe, this wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it might mean a bit of lost revenue, but that was something that could be fixed. The people had been getting a bit uppity lately, a little bit rowdy. That growing middle class knew how to read now. They didn't necessarily share the religion of the people at the top, and they were demanding economic and religious freedom. But now that so many of them were dead, now that many of their towns and homes had been destroyed, things in Europe could return to the status quo, as they had been before the war. If you were of a conspiratorial mind, you might think that that was the purpose of the Thirty Years' War. But the crowned heads in Europe didn't realize, not yet, that things would never go back to the way they had been before. When everything was said and done, when the war was over, right about 1648, Europe signed a peace treaty, really a number of peace treaties, but they began to rebuild. And it's important to look at where Europe stood after the Thirty Years' War. Your textbooks will tell you that the primary result of the Peace of Westphalia, as it's called, the treaty that ended the war, one of them, was to codify the existence of the European nation-state. That is, it removed the monarchs of Europe from their existential role in their nations. You know, Spain had a king, England had a king, France had a king but the nations were no longer their king. If the king of France died, he didn't have the right to divvy up his kingdom, and kings of France had done that for a long, long time. But now, even when the king died, France, as a nation, still existed. They had governmental and bureaucratic structures that actually ran things, and they would stay in place even when the king died because the king wasn't the nation any longer. France was still there. Even when King Louis's kingdom was shifting and changing, and it would many times, that country was now a country. And that is a really big factor in what changed in Europe after the war. But let's look at the four powers we discussed earlier. The Spanish Habsburgs, the Dutch Republic, the English Stuarts, and the French Bourbons. The Habsburgs, well, they lost. They forfeited a lot in the Thirty Years' War. They weren't the all-powerful entity that they once had been. Portugal was once again independent from Spain, along with much of their Asian colonies. The power of the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany was mostly ceded to the local rulers. They had a new, even weaker, Habsburg king on the throne of Spain. Now, this was a trend that the House of Habsburg had been facing before going into the war. In fact, it's probably why they wanted to go to war, but the war didn't solve their problems. The Netherlands, on the other hand, won the war, I would argue, they were now, once the war was over and the Eighty Years' War was drawing to a close, a fully independent republic. They were no longer under the yoke of Spain. They had a chartered corporation called the Dutch East India Company that was poised to capture virtually all of the colonial holdings in the East Indies and be a major player in the West Indies. 
Now that's for a future episode, but the Dutch Republic was poised to facilitate almost all of the trade that was going from any of the colonial holdings of the East or West Indies back to Europe. The Dutch Republic was soon to be a Dutch Empire. France, though, well, France never seemed to lose these wars. They would occasionally lose battles, they would occasionally lose territory, but they were always smart about these things. When the war was over, they had a new boy king named Louis XIV. Now, Louis XIV would go on to become the most successful, powerful, and famous king that France would ever have. But once again, that's for a future episode. France did capture a significant amount of territory from the House of Habsburg, territory that they considered properly French territory, territory that they would fight over time and time again and had been fighting over for centuries. But they weren't exactly selfish in the war. They did bolster their Dutch allies in the east and their English allies in the channel. And England, well, England is a strange case in this war. They had actually pulled out of the Thirty Years' War very early. They'd been a member of the Alliance, but they were busy devolving into their own civil war. Now they were no longer a kingdom at all. They were led by a military dictator named Oliver Cromwell, and England was a commonwealth. I don't have the time or the inclination to go into all of that, so I would suggest you go back and listen to that episode, or... Better yet, you should listen to the first several episodes of the Revolutions podcast that talk about the English Civil War. What I will say is that England was a quagmire, and Oliver Cromwell was a disaster for England. We will be talking about that next time, though. But why does all of this, why does the story of Europe from 1610 to 1648 and the Thirty Years' War, why does that matter in a story about pirates? I mentioned some of the political and religious and social and economic changes that were a result of the Thirty Years' War, although they are many, many more than I could have mentioned and far more complex. But what does that matter to the pirates? Well, a few reasons. First, and what really interests me, I'd like you to put yourself into the shoes of someone who would have lived through all of that, all of that toil and terror and torment. Imagine that you were actually there. Maybe imagine yourself as a child, a young person at least. Maybe someone who was born during the war, into that world of strife and hunger. Imagine that you're a part of a family with no wealth and no lands, just a poor peasant, maybe in Germany. There is a decent chance that you never would have met your father. In fact, that seems likely. He quite possibly, was not married to your mother. He may have had food to offer her, or a sword that allowed him to do what he pleased. If they were married, it's probable that he was drafted into the army, or just press-ganged into service, just kidnapped, and if so, there's a good chance that he died on some distant battlefield. And then there's a reasonable chance that you're an orphan, you may have known your mother at some point, but you may have watched her die. You may have watched her get sick and waste away or starve to death. You might have had brothers and sisters. You might still, you might be responsible for them. Maybe you're nine or ten years old and have three or four brothers smaller than you. Maybe you watched all of them die as well and you're all alone in the world. And there's a reasonable possibility that you would have had to watch your mother or your sisters, maybe both, burned alive at the stake for the crime of witchcraft. Put yourself in the shoes of someone like that. And then try to imagine how you would feel. Imagine how you would feel toward men with power. How would you feel about lords and kings and men who led armies? There was an entire generation of people born in this era that went through something like that. They grew up in situations of extreme trauma, an entire generation born with PTSD. But they could point at the kings and the lords and the men that did this to them, that did this to their families. Men who were, if everything were running as it was supposed to, who were supposed to protect and provide. And they watched them kill and rape and let those that you love starve to death. 
Imagine you were a member of a religious minority, a Lutheran or a Huguenot Calvinist or maybe an Anabaptist. But if you were, how would you feel about God? Perhaps this was all a test. Perhaps this was a life of suffering meant to show your worth to get into heaven. Or perhaps if you were a Catholic, you might think that this was just God's plan. And in times past, you may have believed something like that, but you've seen Protestants fighting Catholics and dying and killing. You've seen Puritans fighting Anglicans and Calvinists fighting Lutherans and Anabaptists fighting everyone. But who was right in that fight? You saw people lose and people win with no regard to their God. Which cause is the just cause? Maybe the proponents of those faiths were all liars and frauds. Maybe, in your worldview, after everything you'd seen, maybe God was dead. And if God wasn't dead, wouldn't you maybe feel just a little bit bitter toward him? After your mother was burned to death and you held your baby sister in your arms while she starved or died of the plague. What would you have faith left in? Society? I mean, if you survived, you very well might not have faith in anything. And if you did, maybe you had the opportunity to steal the sword off of a dead soldier and maybe you would have faith in that. This was an apocalyptic nightmare for thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. They lived like it was Mad Max and they had to survive somehow and many of them came out the other side deeply changed an entire generation. Maybe... We would understand it better today as a post-apocalyptic nightmare. A world where all of their structures have fallen apart. And the only thing that matters anymore is your ability to make it in the world. Your reliance on laws starts to dissipate when your reliance on a sword becomes the most important thing. So imagine yourself in that world where the societal structures that you once would have relied on just weren't there anymore. Couldn't you see yourself turning to a lawless human being? Perhaps not destructive actively, but a person who feels justified in taking what they need to survive. A person who feels justified spitting in the face of authority. A person who might feel that it is a good idea to find a gang of like-minded people and rove around taking what you need from the people with more than they need in the first place. But let's change the situation, the parameters, just a little bit. Instead of a poor German peasant, imagine yourself born as a French fisherman's child, or perhaps an English fisherman's child, on the Channel or maybe the North Sea, and then imagine that sometime during the war your father's boat, your source of livelihood and food, is taken by the government. And then imagine that your father is taken away, forced to work on a ship for some captain who's probably going to get him killed on the far side of the world. Imagine your mother struggling to feed you and your siblings, and then, one night, after you've been out, maybe begging, maybe trying to earn a living, doing odd jobs, you're on your way home, when all of a sudden, the world goes black. And the very next thing you know, you wake up, the sun bright in your eyes and hot on your face, and the sound of the waves in your ears. Before you are able to stand, you realize that you are on the ocean. It's a sensation you know well, growing up as the child of a fisherman. And you realize that you are far from home and far from shore. What would you do in that situation? Next time, we're going to follow this hypothetical fisherman's child. We're going to look at the choices that are put in front of them and the decisions that they make. Some of them we might not agree with, but if we look at it from the point of view of growing up in a world like the one we have discussed today, they'll begin to make sense. And that hypothetical fisherman's child will go on to become what we are talking about next time, a buccaneer. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. 
I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has given us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show. Everybody who has recommended us to people online or in real life. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. So thank you. And I'd like to thank everybody for their patience. As tends to be the case this time of year, every year, I came down with a cough that made recording difficult. However, even though I was unable to record, at least to sound decent recording, I was able to write up the rest of our The Story So Far series, so we should be getting them out in short order. I hope you're enjoying it, and I hope you enjoy what we have coming up. I'd also like to thank everybody who got in touch after our 100th episode to offer up congratulations and words of encouragement. You were all really, really kind, and it really helps keep me going. I appreciate all of you, so thank you very much. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you really should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight